So we continue our series this summer in Psalms, finding our way in chapter 52. This psalm is similar to the psalm we looked at last week, Psalm 51, in that it's attributed to a specific occasion that is recorded in the life of David. You'll notice that the title line uh, before Psalm 52 attributes it to when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, quote, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. The story that that title refers to can be found in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. It's a sad story, and I'm going to just give a short recap of the main points in that story because I believe having a familiarity with that story from 1 Samuel 21 and 22 will help us more deeply appreciate uh, the the truth that that David is writing and the tone and the, the emotion, the sentiment that lies behind what David writes here in Psalm 52. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, okay, just one chapter before, David and Jonathan, Saul's son, uh, are, are having conversation, and David is convinced that Saul is plotting for his death. Jonathan's a little skeptical about that. Of course, David is an honored guest in, in Saul's home. Uh, he's he's a, a, a son-in-law. He's the captain of his bodyguard. He's one of the valiant warriors in Saul's army. And yet, at the same time, he is... Uh, ruthless against David because he is threatened by David. So Jonathan and David devise a scheme to determine, uh, to de- Jonathan devises a scheme to determine what his father's intentions are toward David, and Jonathan discovers that, yes, Saul is out to kill David. And so they devise a scheme, another scheme, to, for Jonathan to let David know. And it has something to do with shooting arrows, and if they go too far, if they go short, and this is kind of the code that's going to be as far as telling David what Saul's intentions are. And of course, as we know the story, uh, it's discovered that Saul wants to kill David. And so David and Jonathan part ways. It's a tearful goodbye. David leaves that field with nothing. He has no weapon. He has no funds, no finances. He runs. He, he is a fugitive on the run, and he leaves. He eventually finds himself in a place called Nob, and there is a man there. And, uh, his, he's a priest. His name is Ahimelech. David has counseled with Ahimelech in the past. He comes to Ahimelech and he asks Ahimelech, is there anything here that you can give me? I'm on a, he kind of does a tongue-in-cheek with saying, don't say anything about my visit to you because I'm on important business for the king, so don't say anything about my visit to you. Do, you. do you have anything that you can give me while I'm on this mission? And Ahimelech says, I have nothing to give you. All we have here is the holy bread for the priests for worship, and I, that's all that we have here. And David says, well, give that to me. I, he needs some food. He's on the run, a fugitive, an outcast. He assures Ahimelech that he's not ceremonially unclean. Ahimelech gives him that holy bread, the showbread there. He gives him that bread. And then David says, do you have any weapons around? I don't even have a sword. I, I, I need some sort of weapon. And Ahimelech says, we don't have any swords laying around here. All we have is the sword of Goliath, whom you killed in the valley. And David says, there's not a sword like that. Give it to me. That's what I'll take. And so he leaves his visit with Ahimelech with some loaves of bread and a sword. He continues to go out. He continues to flee. While David was leaving, or while he was there with Ahimelech, David happens to see somebody. His name is Doeg. He's an Edomite, and he was the, he was the, captain, and that captain's not the right word, he oversaw the herds, he was the leader of the herdsmen for Saul. David sees Doeg, notices that Doeg sees David there meeting with Ahimelech, and David wonders, is something bad going to happen because of that? 
David continues on the run. He eventually finds himself in a forest and he finds himself surrounded by a ragtag group of malcontents. First Samuel 22 says this, Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Meanwhile, Saul keeps hunting David. David keeps eluding him. This infuriates Saul. He's frustrated and infuriated at his inability to capture and kill David. Saul is standing there under a tree with a spear in his hand, and he's, he's just complaining to the people around him on why all this bad luck seems to be happening to him. He can't seem to, to capture David. He's bemoaning this. And he's troubled because he knows that the reason he can't capture David is because people aren't betraying David. He knows that there are people around that know where David is, but nobody's betraying David. And he's frustrated. And he says to the people around him, Nobody can give you fields or vineyards. Nobody can give you power or position. Saul says, I'm the guy that can do that. Why won't anybody help me capture this guy? Doeg is nearby, and he hears this. So Doeg responds and says, Hey, I saw David coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And Doeg goes on and tells Saul that he inquired of the Lord for him. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for the sake of David, and he gave David provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So what Saul does is he summons Ahimelech and the priests and his whole household to explain why he has done this. So Saul asks Ahimelech, why have you conspired with David against me? And Ahimelech is just flabbergasted. He's stunned. What do you mean? Uh, he's, he's one of people in your nation. He's one of the captain of your bodyguard. He's your son-in-law. He's, he's in a privileged position. I, this isn't the first time I've done this for David in the past. How have I conspired? How have I done any sort of act of treason here or treachery? And Saul won't hear it. Saul is convinced from his perspective that Ahimelech has betrayed Saul by conspiring with David. And so Saul commands that Ahimelech and his household be killed. He gives his bodyguard detail the command to kill, and the bodyguard detail won't do it. They stand there with their swords sheathed because they will not kill innocent priests from, with Ahimelech and his, and his household. And so Saul turns to Doeg and tells Doeg to kill. And Doeg begins to kill. Doeg, at the end of the day, killed 85 priests, it's recorded. Then it says he went to Nob and killed everyone there. And the text says that he killed men, women, children, and infants. And he didn't stop there. He went down and started slaughtering oxen, donkeys, and sheep. One survivor of Ahimelech's household was Abiathar. One survivor escapes, eventually finds his way to David's camp, something Saul couldn't do, finds his way to David's camp and tells David this horrific story. And David says, I wondered. He hears the story from Abiathar and he says, I was concerned when I saw Doeg there that something horrible would happen. He tells Abiathar to join his company of men for protection and he walks away. And sometime after that conversation from, with Abiathar, hearing this horrific story, David pens Psalm chapter 52. This is a psalm full of blunt and hard, difficult emotions. There's a rawness to this. There's a, an, a raw edge, edginess to this in some of the statements that he says when he writes about the plotting destruction 
And so Psalm 52 shows us how God's people can respond to the horrific injustices of this world while maintaining a genuine faith in God. Psalm 52 helps us understand how Christians can respond to the horrors that happen in our world, the injustices that seem like we can do nothing to right, and how we can carry on and live with a vibrant faith in a world like this. Psalm 52 reminds us that the days of evil and evildoers are numbered because God always wins. If we were to try to put Psalm 52 in one simple statement, it would be this. God always wins. That's really the central message that is found here in Psalm 52. God always wins. So this is going to be a simple sermon. We're going to look at it with two simple points. The first is that God always wins. Look in the first, op- the, the first few lines here. Verses, really, this is kind of verses down, uh, getting close from one down almost to verse 7. The psalm begins with a series of questions. And within those questions are descriptions of the evildoers. And I believe that David has in mind when he's writing about these evildoers, Doeg the Edomite, who carried out Saul's command to kill, but also I think he has in mind Saul because Saul is the one that gave the command to kill. Look at that opening line. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. So much horror had taken place around him, such terrible loss of life. And David anchors his soul in the only thing that will outlast evil in evildoers, and that is God's steadfast love. To everyone who heard the story, which I'm sure the story spread quickly through the camp, right, that David was with, everyone who heard that story, it seemed like, it appeared like Doeg and Saul were the winners. And of course, the, the citizens of Nob were the losers. They lost their life. But David's eye of faith sees something greater. It's able to see through the horrors of that evil towards something greater. And what is greater is God's steadfast love. And that contrast is sharp between loves here. The love that David is fixing his soul upon and the love that is recorded about what motivated the evildoers in Psalm 52. Notice how the the writing, uh, how David uses the word love as he describes these evildoers. He describes Doeg and Saul, particularly Doeg. Verse 1. Someone, he loves evil because this, he's boasting in it. People boast about what they love. I, I used this illustration before in the past, and so it's well used here in this church family, so it'll, it'll it probably ring a bell. But I remember uh, coming out here uh, to candidate, and somebody took me to Torchy's Tacos, and I had a Torchy taco, and I thought, this is a great taco. I wanted to tell other people about it. I was boasting in Torchy's Taco. Why? Because I loved it. Doeg boasts in what he loves. What does he love? Evil. There's a relishing of it. There's an eagerness for it. Verse 3, he loves evil and he loves lying more than truth. If there's ways to get ahead that involve lying, Doeg is the one that's going to run after that. He loves all the words that devour, verse 4. Destruction and devouring. This is what he loves, which makes me think, thinking about the story laying behind Psalm 52, and then seeing this description that David writes under inspiration about how he loves all words that devour, it makes me think that Doeg actually enjoyed the command that Saul gave him. Kill. Doeg got excited about that. This is the depth of evil that David is bemoaning here. All of this evil is contrasted in that first verse with what David fixes his confidence in, and it's the steadfast love of God that endures all the day. Even the day when Ahimelech and 85 priests and the citizens of Nob were killed. 
This reminds me of really every kind of fight scene that gets you excited in a movie, right? You've got your hero fighting against the evil guy and they're exchanging blows or fighting however, whatever, whatever the style of fighting is. And it looks like your hero is, is being overcome. And it kind of gets you drawn into the story. But then, really, this is pretty much every fight scene, right? Rocky Balboa, right? He, he's down on the mat. He can't do any more. You think he's lost. But then he rallies and he starts throwing punches again and, and overcomes his opponent. In some ways, and that's a terrible illustration in the way that God is never on the mat, down, bloody, and wondering if he's going to fail. That's not God at all. But from our perspective, we might begin to think like that. Like, where is God? Where is his justice? Where is his love? Where is his mercy and compassion? When there are horrors happening in the world, these injustices that are happening in the world, some places that we read of far away, like Afghanistan, and some places that are very near, like maybe in your own family. How do we respond to this? We must respond with a tenacious grasp, a firm heart convicted that God's steadfast love endures all the day. Look at verse 5. David applies the salve of this truth to his broken heart because he is convinced that God always wins. God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. And then that word Selah, think about that. Doeg appeared to be the winner, but he's not, not really. David was assured that there was a day coming when Doeg is going to face God and it's going to be this kind of comical interaction in this gruesome way. Imagine camping in a tent. And this is a conversation that, our, that Shannon and I have had, my wife and I have had when we've gone camping. Because when you think about it, you're in this little bubble of, you know, this little thin like millimeter of nylon. And it's like, that's going to protect me? You know, so bears, I mean, what if a bear comes? Hide in your tent? I mean, it's this little thin piece of nylon that takes rain out. And that's kind of the story, the idea here that, that David is writing about when he says that he will snatch and tear you up from your tent. Imagine a bear walking through a campground, if this doesn't ruin camping for you, walking through a campground and just tearing open this little flimsy tent and ripping Doeg out of his tent. And now he's facing the judgment of God. Doeg thought he could hide. He was safe. God is going to come after him. God is the one that's going to be the righteous judge. He will uproot you from the land of the living, but God's steadfast love endures all the day. God will one day give judgment against every injustice and his judgment is forever. And that fact encourages David. That fact comforts him against the horrors of what he has just heard from Abiathar. So at the end of verse 5, there's that word Selah, which is an invitation to pause and consider the truth that he's, writing, that he's written about. And I think it would be good for us to do the same. This is not meant to be a... Uh, This application is not meant to disturb us, but I think it's necessary in a crowd. Are you a doeg? Do you love evil? Really, this would be the first obvious application here. I know I'm I'm preaching to a church family, so I'm not throwing out false accusations against you. Just because I might have looked at you somewhere in the last 20 seconds doesn't mean that I have you in mind. But simply as as a crowd, we need to just examine And understand, are you a doeg? If you are, Psalm 52 is a mercy from God to warn you of his righteous judgment that is coming against everyone who loves evil. It is a merciful warning that one day you will face God's judgment. 
the righteous, steadfast love of God that endures all the day that God's people celebrate is not a love that you can celebrate if you are a lover of evil. You will face God's judgment. And it will be like a bear ripping you out of your tent. In other words, do you love lies more than truth? I'm not saying, has anybody killed 100 people in here? Is anybody comparable to Doeg in that way? No, I'm not saying that. But do you love lies more than truth? Do you enjoy getting ahead in life through lies or are you willing to take a loss for the sake of truth? God's steadfast love protects his people, but his steadfast love will be what is the ruthless judgment against those that love evil. Which are you? Psalm 52 is inviting you to turn away from evil and find the comfort that David found in God's steadfast love. Another application is simply this for us to consider as God's people, David's perspective. David has a particular perspective as he copes with the horrors of what he's heard from Abiathar. Such horrible loss of life. And I imagine that David felt a sense of responsibility. I mean, after all, this happened after he was seen with Ahimelech. After the story was told that Ahimelech helped him and gave him bread and gave him a weapon. And now as a result of that, Saul retaliates like a deranged man giving this command to kill and Doeg is happy to carry it out. Blood is spilled. Families are eradicated. I imagine that David had a sense of guilt. All that he can do is cling to a faith-filled perspective that we need to as well. Have you begun to doubt that God will one day snatch and tear apart evildoers in his righteous wrath? Have you lost hope as you live a Christian faith in a world that is full of hopeless kinds of stories, injustices, losses that are unrighteous, unfair? Christians, we need Psalm 52 because we live in a world just like David did, a world full of evil injustices where we sometimes feel like, oftentimes feel like we are powerless to overcome or powerless to reverse. I've used Psalm 52 in my own heart this week as I prayed for Afghanistan. As a pastor, some of my news feeds are full of connections to some of the horrors that Christians are facing and some of the efforts that almost seem hopeless of trying to get Christians, not only Christians, but trying to protect Christians because they are being sought after with malicious intent. There are Afghani Christians that died this week at the hands of characters like Doeg. How do we live a vibrant Christian faith with that kind of reality? How do we gather on a Sunday and sing praise and talk about rejoicing in God? Doesn't that seem duplicitous, hypocritical? Psalm 52 helps us understand how we can live a Christian faith in a real, in, with those kind of realities facing us. We respond with a Psalm 52 perspective. We cast ourselves entirely on God's steadfast love that endures all the day. We cry out to God in trusting Him to be the righteous judge who has an arm of justice that can reach beyond ours, further than any prison sentence or execution or any sentence, any court of law. God's reign reaches past that. God always wins. Psalm 52. Right now, it looks like the Taliban is winning. Make it close to home. Right now, it may look like in your life that there is some act of evil or bad actor that seems to be winning in your life or maybe in your family's life. Psalm 52 reminds us this. God always wins. 
And you say, well, hang on. You don't know the story. You don't know the details. You don't know how bleak it is or what's happened or how powerless. You're right, I don't, but God does. God always wins. His steadfast love endures all the day. Now, I cannot empirically prove that to you with stories and illustrations. Because have you ever heard that? Have you been in a hard time in your life and somebody gives you a story about what God has done in their life and, you're, and you're, the cynicism in you is like, well, I'm glad that worked out for you, but what's happening in my life is horrible. Friends, the response of Psalm 52 is a response of faith. It's a response of faith that reminds us of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, when he says this, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Christians are people who comfort themselves with truths like this, who rest assured that there are greater terrors in the world than physical death. And it is the terror of meeting a righteous God with the condemnation of your sin, unsatisfied in Jesus. Psalm 52 gives us this eternal perspective. And Christian family, I want to invite us to be students of Psalm 52 in this perspective to pursue recovering this, this perspective that eludes us. What happens is we become, we, we, we treat ourselves as if we are peers of God, as if we understand everything God does and therefore we would make a different decision in the rule and reign of the world and therefore God is then culpable. He is guilty. But friends, it's been said like this before by another apologist. If, if God is truly God, then couldn't he have reasons for what is happening in the world that are beyond our understanding, our comprehension at all, if he is truly God. And the apologist then, we have to realize the answer to that is yes. You say, well, that doesn't satisfy. God, I, I need reasons. Here's what David satisfies his heart with. God's steadfast love endures all the day. God always wins. God always wins, but then how should Christians respond? And this seems odd, right? And so Psalm 52 tells us this, verse 6, The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Because God always wins, Christians rejoice. Christians rejoice. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Psalm 52 teaches us that Christian joy is resilient. I, I, I believe that David wept when he heard the story from Abiathar. I can't imagine any other response. But then he also pens words that say this, the righteous shall see and fear and shall what? Laugh at him, saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge. Who was that? Doeg, the one who killed. Look at him. He wouldn't make God his refuge, but what? Trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. You see, David realizes, David understands, he assures his heart this, God always wins. Christian joy is resilient. Now, this is a sober joy. This is not a, a Chuck E. Cheese joy. This is not a, just a, a, a thin cotton candy joy. This is a sober joy, but it's a joy that enables suffering Christians to laugh at their accusers, to laugh at their executioners, because when God is your refuge, your soul is secure. Christians are assured that what? God always wins. His steadfast love endures all the day. I came across a quote from C.S. Lewis' Screwtape Letters this week while I was studying this. And, and Screwtape Letters, if you're not familiar with it, is a satirical and fictional series of letters from a so-called senior demon whose name is Screwtape. 
Screwtape the demon is writing letters to his nephew demon named Wormwood because he is training Wormwood in the art and responsibility of being a tempter, to tempt Christians. Here's just a snippet, which I think describes some of the, the, the wonder and mystery of, of a Christian faith in a world full of injustices. In the words of Screwtape, again, fictional satire, I have looked up this girl's dossier. They're talking about a Christian. And I'm horrified at what I find. Not only a Christian, but such a Christian. A vile, sneaking, simpering, demure, monosyllabic, mouse-like, watery, insignificant, virginal, bread-and-butter miss. The little brute. Again, this is the demon speaking, okay? She makes me vomit. She stinks and scalds through the very pages of the dossier. It drives me mad the way the world has worsened. We have had her to the arena in the old days. That's what her sword is made for. Not that she'd do any good there either. A two-faced little cheat, I know the sort, who looks as if she'd faint at the sight of blood and then dies with a smile. You know, that's kind of raw and rugged writing. Again, that's satire of, of a demon writing to another demon about trying to destroy a Christian and how flabbergasted they are at the Christian faith. Who from the world's view seems so weak and such a loser, but then stands and is killed with a smile. Psalm 52, God always wins. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your body may die, but when God is your refuge, when you trust in his steadfast love, you can be sure that your soul is secure. And that's where Psalm 52 brings us truly to the heart of the Christian story, the heart of the Christian faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, of God's steadfast love to us in Jesus. David writes about the steadfast love of God with conviction and with certainty. We celebrate the steadfast love of God with a name. His name is Jesus. In what are you ultimately trusting? That's where David turns in Psalm 52. Do you see in verse 7, when he, when he derides Doeg, when he derides this evildoer, see the man who would not make God his refuge. Does that describe you? But trusted in the abundance of his riches, does that describe you? And maybe not riches, maybe it's your good works, maybe it's your righteous living, maybe it's your religious fervor. But either way, whether it's riotous living or religious fervor, it's still you being your Savior if you refuse to trust in God as your refuge. And Jesus said it like this in Matthew 16, whoever would save his life will lose it. There are Christians around the world that have modeled this for us. We don't know their names or their stories but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I believe David, what he writes in Psalm 52, is the echo, the shadow of what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 16. David, if he had a chance to use Jesus' words, would tell this to Doeg. What, is it, what, what profit do you have if you've undertaken this horrific loss of life for your financial gain of power and position and wealth? in Saul's flimsy little kingdom, but you forfeit your soul. You see, the next verse in Matthew 16, Jesus says this, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That's Psalm 52. God always wins. And Christians, we forget this. Well, we should celebrate this. God wins. But when that day happens, how will God judge you? If you're not a Christian, this is a question you need to consider. 
Christians have an answer to this from the scriptures. The answer is Jesus who took our condemnation, who took our judgment. That's why Christians sing and praise Jesus because we embrace him by faith, having been given the righteousness of Jesus on our life, on our account. So we are spared the judgment of God. But if you have not embraced Jesus, his steadfast love to you, then you are going to be exposed to the danger of God's judgment, of his wrath. Friends, Psalm 52 is an invitation, if you don't know God's steadfast love in Jesus, to embrace him. To exchange your love affair with sin and self-salvation and embrace the righteousness of God gifted to you through Jesus. And that's the confidence that David has in verse 8. I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. How could David describe himself like this? I mean, the guy writing this psalm just heard a heartbreaking story of death and loss. And yet he is describing himself like a green olive tree in the house of God. Now, this description might lie flat on our modern ears because I don't think any of us have said, how are you doing today? And you said, I feel like a green olive tree. And you were like, whoa. But for the, the writer in this day, an olive tree was known. It was, it was legendary for long life. And it was legendary for, product, for being productive. You could, you could, uh, a single olive tree would produce gallons of olive oil. And so David uses an analogy that his readers would have immediately thought of this luxurious, flourishing tree of long life and productivity. That's the picture that David has in mind as he writes this. I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. A heartbroken man coping with the horrific injustices of evil in the world writes that about his life. How in the world? This is the guy who's a fugitive. He's an outcast. And he feels, again, probably some sense of responsibility for what has happened. And yet he writes these words. And I believe that's an expression of faith. David understood and trusted in the abiding presence of God's steadfast love, hear this, and God's delight in him. God's delight in him. So Christian, what guilt are you carrying? What sense of responsibility for evil or even secondarily are you carrying that is clouding your vision of God's steadfast love enduring all the day. David was able to look at the steadfast love of God and say, because of him, I flourish. I'm an outcast and a fugitive, but I flourish. Psalm 52 is very relevant for our lives. As we cope with the injustices of our world, as we feel the heartbreak of of things wrong in our own life, in our family's life, in our society's life, in our world. God's steadfast love is not just this silly, thin little theory out there that Christians hang on to because they are weak people. Friends, it is what gives Christians our greatest strength. Psalm 52 is so relevant for us. Because, friends, it tells us that when circumstances in life are bleak, when we are the recipients of injustices, we can be assured that we are God's, as God's child, we hold his delight. 
No matter what goes wrong around us, we can still be assured that as God's child, when He is our refuge, that we are the object of His delight. Do you see verse 8? I trust in the steadfast love of God, not just for a minute or for a day or for an hour or for a week, but forever and ever. And friends, this again is a perspective that we need to, to, to hold on to. We have a perspective of hours and minutes and days and weeks and years and decades. God's perspective laughs at that. His judgment is not hindered by, by that timetable, by our sense of urgency. He's got all the time in the world and more to make everything wrong right and to do it perfectly. And so David clings to the only thing he can, God's steadfast love, because God always wins. And then he responds in verse 9 with thankfulness. What are we going to do with this, right? Give thanks? Why is David giving thanks? I want to just pause here. This is not a false, sickly, syrupy, false kind of Christianese. God's giving me trouble. and Praise God for the trouble. That is not what's going on in Psalm 52. I don't believe that's the sentiment of Scripture. He's not praising God for evil. He is praising God because God always wins. God has done it. You see this? I will thank you forever. Why, verse 9? Because you have done it. What has God done? Couldn't you have written a psalm? God, where are you? Why didn't you protect life? Why didn't you hinder evil? Why didn't you stop this, this horrific slaughter? And yet David ends with, I will thank you forever because you have done it. Friends, there is a faith that David is expressing, a confidence in God's righteous judgment. Why? Because God always wins. His steadfast love endures all the day. And so what David then concludes with, he says, I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Verse, that last part of verse 9 sums up really so much of the entire Christian experience. So much of the Christian life is waiting on God. <laughs> so much. Nearly all of it, waiting on God. That's what he's doing. He wants judgment. He wants righteous judgment to come and rip Doeg out of his tent pull him up like a, little, like a little weed out of the ground. So what is David doing then? I will wait for your name. But then he says, you say, well, that's difficult to wait. It is. But notice the last words, for it is good in the presence of the godly. I think what David is saying there is that there is comfort and strength waiting on God with other people who are waiting on God. I just want to put Psalm 52 in a church perspective here for us today. Friends, what we're doing together on Sunday, we've done some things that are more important than anything else you could do. We have prayed together for Christians that need God's, God's intervention. We've reminded each other of, of truths that are more true than, your, than, than the billing receivables and, and phone calls you're going to make tomorrow. Truths that are going to last for eternity. I'm not diminishing the work you're doing tomorrow, but I'm attaching it to eternal realities. What, what David is writing about here is he's going to wait for the name of, name of God. It is good. And there's a comfort in doing that with the presence of the godly. Thank you for gathering with God's people today, even when you didn't feel like it. Thank you for singing loud praise to God. I could hear you this morning more than I have in other weeks. Thank you for hearing that encouragement this morning and singing together. 
Because there are Christians in this room that need to hear you sing those truths because their hearts are broken. They can't sing it. Thank you. You have helped this church family wait on the Lord. That is hard. That is difficult. But it is right and it is good. God always wins. His steadfast love endures all the day.